Curiosities. I will be your host for the evening, Leopold. I'm afraid my cousin Osgood met with a slight accident whilst teaching the neighborhood children how to juggle with three pairs of pruning shears. I always told Cousin Osgood, don't start children off with pruning shears. Teach them with apples or small rubber balls. But you know Osgood. At any rate, I will be minding the gallery for a while. At least until the lawsuit is settled. Our exhibit for this evening comes from author Harris Coverley. Mr. Coverley lives in Manchester, England, where he, mostly, pretends to be busy. He has short fiction published on Planet Scum, Horror Magazine, Eldritch Journal, and Shotgun Honey, amongst others. He is also a Riesling-nominated poet with verse in Starline. Spectral Realms, Utopia Science Fiction, Jitter, and elsewhere. It will be read for us by Mr. Darren Callow. The Instant by Harris Coverley After our game of cards had ended, Hemming placed the box on the table and explained its purpose. It's a kind of stimulator... A means to experience an emotion you otherwise have a hard time grasping for yourself. Yes, but does it work? Asked Ashbury, obviously not swallowing the premise, and more concerned at that moment with counting his ample winnings. Nobody really knows, replied Hemming, repositioning the box a little further from the table's edge. The inventor died decades ago, and it was not found until years after his death, in his storage space, with instructions stuck to its side. All you have to do is lift the lid, stick your head in, and ask what you want to experience. It's quite a fun thing. If you're in the mood, that is. We were all quite in the mood, as a matter of fact. The brandy having loosened us, and the night being soaked with the warm dew pouring from the open window that filled the air with sweetness and vigour. Ashbury, the sceptic, volunteered himself for the first try. The box itself was of uniform rectangular construction, carved from some unusually streaked wood from the Far East, Malaya or somewhere like that. But it otherwise seemed unremarkable, rising some eight inches tall and being roughly ten inches by eight in perimeter. Hemming, from his seat, slid off the lock-free lid with ease and instructed Ashbury to stand up and insert his head into the box. 
Ashbury took a quick sip of his drink before doing as Hemming requested, leaning his hands on the table and gingerly sticking his face into the box. Your whole head, Hemming said. What I was told, anyway, or else it might not work properly. Ashbury lifted his face back out to look at his host. Where did you acquire this thing, anyway? Part of a lotted auction last week. A blind bid on knick-knacks and whatnots. Some good, some dubious, but all interesting nonetheless. Go on, insert your whole head. Hemming smiled with a playful wickedness. Slowly, Ashbury lowered his head into the box, until it was submerged utterly, and we felt his forehead touch the base. Now what? Ashbury asked. Ask it for what emotion you want, Hemming said, a tighter grip on his glass betraying anticipation. Something you have trouble experiencing. Anything. There was a pause, before Ashbury's voice echoed out of the box. I asked for joy. There was some giggling amongst us, and I admit I joined in. Hemming hushed us, but it was only a moment before we could see results. Ashby raised his body up, not in shock or pain, but in abject elation. He walked about the room, laughing, with so much happiness I thought this usually dour acquaintance had become possessed. After a few minutes, his big smile remained, but he calmed down enough to sit in his chair and get back to his brandy. A little while later, he had gained enough measure of self-control to explain himself. Oh, it was so wonderful. It was like being free of all dread. I hadn't felt so marvellous since I was a young boy, frolicking with my father's hounds in the woods. Ashbury soon became too exhausted to continue any conversation, and was led by Hemming's butler to the guest room to lie down for a time. Maybe even a night. After such a display, any residual scepticism in the room had dissipated, and we were all eager to give the box a try. Hemming, not wanting to play favourites, decided to utilise some matches in hand to see who could win the next go by lot. The remaining five of us drew, and I received the shortest match, traditionally reserved for the delegation of an unpleasant task, an irony not lost on me in retrospect. I did as Ashbury had done before me. I stood straight in front of the open box, leaned my hands on the table at either side, and inserted my head entirely inside. I stood there like some deranged emu man for a moment, before remembering the need for a verbal request, which with little thought I gave. I wish for love. My body tensed in expectation for a rush of emotion like that of Ashbury's experience. But as the seconds mounted, nothing came to pass. And after nearly a minute of posing, a crick in my neck began to develop and I had to stand straight to the sight of five disappointed faces whom had expected a show. Well, asked Hemming. His glass refilled. Nothing, I said, sitting back down. 
No sensation. No impressions. No love. The somberness of my words blunted what remained of any excitement, and we sat in silence for a while, nursing our drinks and watching the grandfather clock reach eleven. I broke the hush. Hemming, what is the name of this thing, anyway? It has no name, he replied, looking at the box mournfully. It came with none in the lot, and the inventor, rest his soul, left none. At least that's what the auction house people told me. Until your misfortune, due to the box's efficiency and promptness, I was tempted to call it something like the instant. Oh, but to the devil with that now. Maybe it just doesn't prefer you, said Cartwright, a stuffy little man who dealt in fabrics and with whom I'd had strong words with in the recent past. It was then decided that I should repeat the entire procedure, which I did. But after yet another minute with my head in the box, after my wish was made, I arose unfulfilled and the rest of the guests and my host fully disillusioned. It was quickly agreed that the evening's festivities would come to an end. Do not worry, Hemming told me at the door as I fitted my top hat. I'm sure it was just a gremlin in the works. Uh, when we meet here again in a fortnight, we'll have another go and have a good gay time. I thanked him for his hospitality, bade him and his butler holding the door a good night and went down to my waiting carriage, the last to depart. The journey from Hemming's house to my own is a swift one, and long before midnight I was in my hallway, my maid taking my coat and hat, and me deciding to have a nightcap in the lounge. I had the rest of the weekend to enjoy in relative solitude. I poured a small whiskey in a silver goblet, and sat in my armchair before the empty fire, grateful in the knowledge that the maid was making my bed. A Miss Florence Holt, whose origins lay in the north. To me, she was still a young girl, not yet thirty years, and in my service for the past five. She was a great asset, a tremendous woman, wonderful, beautiful, very forgiving of an old fool like me. As I swallowed my liquor, these thoughts began to dominate my mind. Thoughts which had never before come to pass. Within minutes, I found myself totally enraptured. My bachelor attitudes dissolved, and the passion of an insane Don Juan taking hold of me. I was suddenly madly in love with Miss Holt, and nothing could dissuade me otherwise. Reason abandoned me absolutely. Soon she came in to tell me that my bed was ready, and struck with that passion, I compelled her to sit down and join me in a drink. She was extremely confused with this turn, never having been involved in any aspect of my personal affairs before. She sat awkwardly on the divan next to my chair as I poured her a whiskey, and myself another to top of the rim. Before giving her the drink, I swigged half of mine down in one go, and soon found myself, this disease overpowering what remained of my senses, on my knees before Florence, stroking and kissing her hand, confessing how much she spontaneously meant to me. 
Confusion on her face gave way to terror, and she made to get up, her drink spilling. I rose up and forced her down, tearing her white apron. She struggled as my mouth moved over her quivering lips. She began to fight me and scream. I, I tore more of her uniform as I confess in disgrace. I began to remove my clothes in the process. She kicked and bit and scratched and with well-aimed knee to my chest, finally broke from my grip and ran out of the lounge. Briefly stunned, I managed to get to my feet and gave chase as I heard the front door swing open and her little feet, her precious tiny feet, fly out onto the street. For half a dozen streets, I ran within inches of her, both of us taking on Hermian speed, me in inexplicable lust, her in virginal horror. Soon a crowd, attracted by all the tumult, followed us and closed in on me, a, a gang of men holding me down until the police arrived to carry my person, crippled by desire, to a cell. A day later, I was dragged before a judge and was ruled insane. But thanks to the intervention of a family friend, I was saved from the asylum and placed under the care of a doctor on Harley Street. It took two months of intense and physically painful alienism, isolated from the rest of the world of news, both public and private, but I gradually lost my love for poor Miss Holt, who had been ferried back north to her family with a sizable endowment for her cooperation and silence. The doctor insisted that my psychosis had been brought on by the stress and isolation of my work, but as soon as I was permitted to leave his care, I made my way to Hemming's house to discuss the effects of that infernal box of his hoping to see the damn thing burned before the day was out. I arrived late in the afternoon to find his house empty, the furniture covered, and the butler packed and preparing to leave for the last time. What is all this? I asked him, looking quite pale and emaciated from my long treatment, convulsing in the approaching autumn chill. Where is Mr. Hemming? The butler matched my paleness. He is dead, sir. Somehow, part of me knew that was already the case, but I was devastated regardless. The butler was kind enough to let me in and uncover a chair for me to sit on. He explained to me it happened over a month ago. A week ago, his family sold his house, and I'm leaving today for new employment. Why sell the house so quickly? I asked. For the shame, sir, he replied. The shame? Yes. Uh, Master Hemming, I'm afraid, hung himself. Sorry to say, from that very chandelier there, said the butler, and pointing to the light high above the stairway across the landing. But, but why? I asked, struggling to accept it. He heard about you, sir, 
the butler said. He understood immediately that it was his uh, instant, as he called it, and decided to try it again. He asked for something he wanted, and within an hour, he had done the deed. What happened to the box? Uh, I don't know, sir. When they cleared the house of small articles, it got swept up with the rest. I told them to destroy it, but I'm sorry to say I was discounted. Drained of any strength, I decided to leave for home and attempt to put my own affairs in order. As we were making our way down the porch steps, the butler, with his travelling case in hand, I asked him, Do you know what Mr. Hemming asked the box for? Yes, sir, he said. I was there. What was it then? Peace, sir. As of writing, no one has recovered the box. And I hope that forever remains the case for any living soul. Our narrator tonight was Mr. Darren Callow, a writer, voice actor, and musician who is based in Hove on the south coast of the United Kingdom, which is a medium-sized cannon shot from the English Channel. Mr. Callow has also lent his voice to Brighton Theatre of the Air and 2-Bit Productions audio dramas and his own steampunk podcast, Tales of New Albion. Before you go, a bit of business. I need to put the staff back to work to show them who is in charge. So we are accepting story submissions now until June 30th, 2021. This session will only be for weird detective manuscripts. You may find submission guidelines at gallerycurious.com. And now, friends, to send you off with one of my favorite traditional toasts. May the devil cut the toes off your foes so that you may know them by their limping. Gallery of Curiosities is produced under a Creative Commons International 4.0 non-commercial attribution, no derivatives license. All story copyrights remain with the authors. Our theme song is Ashes, Ashes by Deus Ex Vapor Machina. This episode was produced on June of 2021. For full show notes, visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com. made my tea today. Was it you? Next time, double the arsenic. I can barely taste it. <laughs>